Bibles and turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. Appreciate the thoughtfulness of the songs today. And from the, song, the hymns we sang to the offertory, I just appreciate the thoughtfulness of it and how it ties in with God's Word today for us. In John chapter 19, we're going to read verses 16 through 30 for our text here this morning. In fact, let's back up just a little bit. We'll go back to verse 13 and read from there. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the preparation of the Passover and about the sixth hour. And he saith unto the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then delivered he him therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews, for the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said therefore among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture they did cast lots. These things therefore the soldiers did. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. One Saturday morning, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who, by the way, was an American preacher, uh, from 1927 to 1960, I believe, when he died. There was one Saturday morning when he was in his study working in, in preparation for his next sermon that the custodian of the church came in and announced that there was a man outside to see him. Giving him the man's card, Dr. Barnhouse read the card, which indicated that this visitor was the captain of a ship. The ship was the Maritania, which was the largest passenger vessel afloat 
at the time. When Dr. Barnhouse went out to meet the man, the captain of the ship said, you have a very beautiful church here. Dr. Barnhouse replied, well, we're very grateful for all that was done by our faithful predecessors a hundred years ago. The captain said, it's very much like the Basilica at Ravenna in Italy. Dr. Barnhouse responded, well, it's an architectural duplication. In fact, years ago, they brought workmen from Italy and the ceilings and the marble columns and the mosaics were all done by Italian workmen. But that's not why you came to talk, is it? You didn't come to talk about the architecture, did you? The man said, no. 23 times a year, I sail the Atlantic. When I come down the bank of Newfoundland, I hear your radio broadcast out of Boston. And as I came this week, I thought to myself, I've got 24 hours in New York. I'm going down to see Dr. Barnhouse. So I took a train, hoping perhaps that I would be able to meet you. And here I am. Dr. Barnhouse was very straightforward, and he said, Sir, have you been born again? The captain replied, Well, that's what I came to see you about. By this time, they had reached a chalkboard in the prayer room, and Dr. Barnhouse drew three crosses on the chalkboard. Underneath the first one, he wrote the word in. Underneath the third one, he wrote the word in. Underneath the middle cross, he wrote the words, not in. He said, do you understand what I mean when I say, if I were to say to you that the men who died with Jesus on a cross had sin within them? The captain thought about it for a minute and he said, yes, I do. But Christ did not have sin within him. Then over the first cross and over the third cross, Dr. Barnhouse wrote the word, on. He said, would you understand what I mean when I write the word on over these crosses? The captain wrinkled his brow and thought for a minute. Dr. Barnhouse said, let me illustrate it for you this way. Have you ever run through a red light? The captain said, yes. Were you caught when you did that? The man said, well, no. Well, in running that red light, you had sin in you. If you would have been caught, you would have had sin on you. So here the thieves that were next to Jesus were bearing the penalty of God. And then he wrote another on over Jesus Christ. And he said, the one thief's sin rested on Christ by virtue of his faith in Christ. The other man's sins remained upon himself. Now which one are you? The man was very tall. He was distinguished. And as he stood, Dr. Barnhouse could see that he was fighting back tears. He said to Dr. Barnhouse, by the grace of God, I am the first man. Dr. Barnhouse said, you mean that your sins are on Jesus? He said, yes. God says my sins are on Jesus. He shot out his hand and he said, that is why I came, what I came to find out. Well, Dr. Barnhouse invited him to lunch and he shared with him the gospel further. And it was that day that that man went back to New York, a born-again Christian. In the crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can all see that same diagram of love. 
There is sin within. But in Christ, our sins are placed on Him. We don't have to pay the penalty for our own sin. And I want us to walk through the passage this morning today and see some of the details of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the things that happened that awful day, the day that the price for sin was paid. Let's pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us today and Lord, that you would renew in our hearts and minds again a new understanding, a refreshing of the cross of Jesus Christ and the penalty for our sin that he paid that He took on Himself, that He became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And Father, I pray that You would work in hearts today, even of those who are not saved, who've never been born again, would You draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've read through this passage. There are four different things that I want to point out here about the cross of Christ and John's telling of the crucifixion. Of course, each of the writers of the Gospels has a different viewpoint, all telling the same story, but some adding more details than others. John is less detailed in uh, the events of the cross. And we're going to pick some things from other Gospels as well this morning. But I want us to walk through this passage and consider what the Word of God tells us. The first point that I want to draw out is the trip to the cross. In verses 16 through 18, look at there with me again. The Bible says, Then delivered he him, therefore unto them to be crucified. And they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went forth into a place called the place of a skull, which is called in the Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him and two others with him on either side one and Jesus in the midst. Here's the trip to the cross. The Gospels tell us little about the pathway that Jesus took to the place of His execution or crucifixion. Such processions, though, were very common in that culture, as common as a funeral march. And so history gives us some details about certain things. Now, customarily, the prisoner would carry his own instrument of death. Verse 17 indicates that was true. And he, bearing his cross, went forth. What Jesus was carrying that day was probably the crossbeam. History tells us those kinds of things. History also tells us that the crossbeam was typically about 100 pounds is what it weighed. And the Bible says that Jesus carried his cross. Typically, a man about to be crucified would be led to the site of his execution by the longest route possible. And the reason for that was so that everybody would see crime doesn't pay. Those were historically true things. And, and there were certainly lots of, of elements involved here that were historically true or customary things. And although Jesus may have endured some of the typical and customary things surrounding his crucifixion, I don't want us to forget this, that none of that originated in the heart and minds of men. You say, well, what do you mean by that, Pastor? Well, verse 16 tells us that they delivered him, therefore, to be crucified, and they took Jesus and led him away. They, Pilate delivered his prisoner to the cross, 
But what was actually happening here was God fulfilling an ages-old plan of delivering up His Son to be crucified for the payment of sin. Even though there were some customary and typical things going on, these things were not ordained or thought up in the minds of men. It was the plan of God all along. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, just turn there quickly, 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 20, let me remind you of this. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Now, if you go back to verse 18, what's the context of of verse 20? Verse 18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Your redemption is through the the blood of Christ. And then verse 20 says, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. All the events that were taking place that day, the Bible tells us, was in the heart and mind of God. Revelation 13 and verse 8 says, All that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. In the mind of God, before the foundation of the world, Jesus was already the the Lamb of God, slain for the sin of the world. Go back to our text and look in verse 17. You find the place of the cross. So verse 16, the plan of the cross was in the heart and mind of God, but the place of the cross, verse 17, and he bearing his cross went forth into a place called the place of a skull. The place of a skull, a place associated with death in the minds of people. The people of Jerusalem, the people of of those who would come to Jerusalem, this was a place known in their heart and mind, a place of death. And yet it was a place prepared by the Father Himself. You think about God in His foreknowledge, in the creation of the world, the place of the skull was created by God. It was a place designed to host the death of the Lamb of God. Verse 17 also tells us of the pain of the cross. It says, he bearing his cross went forth. Verse 18, when they crucified him. The pain of the cross. The other gospel writers mention, the Bible tells us here in verse 17 that Jesus bore his cross. The other gospel writers mention that a man named Simon of Cyrene carried his cross for him. There's no contradiction here. Jesus left Pilate's judgment hall carrying his cross. But Jesus was so battered and torn and beaten that he couldn't carry a hundred pounds on his shoulders and on his back anymore. And a man named Simon was recruited along the way to help him carry the cross. But John's words here bring to mind the symbolism of the cross. Jesus was bearing upon himself the weight of, of the sin of the world. Let me remind you that the cross was more, the cross represented more than just wood. 
It represented the heartbreak, the pain, the slavery, the debt of sin. Jesus bore it all. That's what Jesus was carrying that day. When they arrived at Calvary, verse 18 reminds us that Jesus was crucified. It doesn't go into detail. John does not go into detail of all the things that happened. John simply says they crucified Him. They nailed our Lord to the cross with spikes through His hands and through His feet. And we could talk about the agony of the cross. We could talk about the scientific things that were going on. We could talk about the positioning that Jesus was in and the up and the down and eventually Jesus probably dying from asphyxiation. We could talk about all those things. John simply says they crucified Him. The agony of the cross... The physical agony was true. Isaiah 53 and verse 4 gives us a little glimpse without detail, but just a little glimpse. Isaiah chapter 53 and look at verse 4. The Bible says, Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him, and with His stripes we are healed. Our minds can imagine and our minds can go back into to what that, the agony that Jesus must have gone through, the physical pain He must have endured on the cross. But the physical pain was just a shadow of the agony that Christ would experience when our sin was poured out on the Son of God. And He entered into the greater horror of separation from the Father. Our minds ought to pause for a minute when we read 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, For He, that's God, hath made Him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin. Can you imagine the horror? The One who never knew sin. His holiness. His righteousness. And the horror of becoming Sin for every man. He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin. And here's the reason why. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The pain of the cross. The physical pain, sure. But the agony of being separated from His Father. The agony of becoming sin and tasting death for every man. But then verse 18 We can look at the power of the cross. When they crucified Him, or where they crucified Him, and two others with Him, on either side one, and Jesus in the midst. Now John doesn't record all that took place with those two thieves. The other Gospels do. Go over to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23. And we can see the power of the cross. Here, two thieves crucified with Jesus Christ, one on either side, Jesus in the midst. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 42, I got to get there. Verse 42, and he said unto Jesus, This is one of the thieves. Let's just back up a little bit. 
Verse 39, And one of the male factors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other, answering, rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What an amazing story. What an amazing thing this is. That as Jesus is dying on the cross, in the very, in the very middle of it, there are two thieves. And Jesus uh, affecting both of them. And one says, hey, save yourself. If you're really God, save yourself and us. And the other says, don't you get it? Don't you understand? We deserve this. But this man hath done nothing. And in that moment, he was confessing that Jesus was the Christ. And he said, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. It was a reflection that he believed in his heart that he was the Son of God. Jesus saw his heart. And in his dying moment said, today, you're going to be with me in paradise. What power, what power in the cross of Jesus Christ. The one thief came to faith in Jesus Christ that day, and all of his sin was put on Jesus Christ. The other died lost because he rejected Jesus Christ. And the truth, the truth of these verses is that, listen, friend, Jesus Christ cannot be avoided Jesus Christ cannot be avoided. And just like those thieves, one on either side, every person in this room will make a decision concerning Jesus Christ. He cannot be evaded. He cannot be avoided. He's the light that comes and lights every man that cometh into this world. Every single person comes to a point of conflict, a point of decision concerning Jesus Christ. You will decide. The trip to the cross, there's a lot here. There's power in the cross. All of it was planned by God. All of it was for a reason. The place even of the cross was ordained of God. The pain of the cross was endured by Christ. And all of it in the heart and mind of God so that sinful men could have their sins forgiven. Let's move down in our text. Go back to John 19 and let's look at verses 19 through 24. And I want you to notice the testimony of the cross. In John 19, in verse 19 as well. And Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. And the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. This title then read many of the Jews... For the place where Jesus was crucified was nigh to the city, and it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Then said the chief priests of the Jews to Pilate, Write not the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Now the coat was without seam, 
woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, They parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. Here we find the testimony of the cross. Two events occurred at Calvary that day that gave loud testimony as to what was taking place. First of all, there's the testimony of the writing. In verses 19 through 22, it describes for us that Pilate wrote something on the cross or put it on the cross, and it said, the king of the Jews. Pilate's sign, the Bible says, was written in Hebrew, the language of religion. It was also written in Greek, the language of philosophy and culture. Greek was also the language of the common man. It was also written in Latin, the Bible says, the language of law and government. The sign that was written above the cross told all who would have passed by that Jesus was the King of the Jews. Everybody could read it. Everybody could see it. Everybody could understand it. Here is the King of the Jews. The cross of Jesus Christ became a giant witness for all who was passing by. The importance of this for us is that it pictures Jesus Christ as a universal Savior. There wasn't a language represented there that somebody would not understand, that somebody would not be able to read. He's universal in his, as a Savior. It doesn't mean that He will automatically save everybody, but it does mean that He will save anyone who will come to Him by faith. Regardless of social standing, regardless of background, He's a whosoever will Savior. It also tells us that He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He truly was the king of the Jews, but not only that, he's the king of kings. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess him as Lord to the glory of God to the Father, that he is the king of kings. What a great testimony, even in the sign. The Jews didn't want that. Oh no, Pilate, say that he said he was the king of Jews. And Pilate said, I've written what I've written. What a testimony for all the world. But then look at verse 23. We find the testimony of the wager. In verse 23, the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart. Now it said, and I did a little reading on this to see if it was true, that every Jewish man had five pieces of clothing. And the Bible says here, that the soldiers, when they crucified him, took his garments, all of them, probably those five pieces of clothing, and, and made four parts to every soldier apart. And so maybe, possibly, each one of the soldiers took something of lesser value, but then it talks about his coat. Notice this, to every soldier apart, and also his coat. Here's the fifth part. Now the coat was without seam, woven from top throughout. The coat of Jesus 
didn't have any seams. And typically, the garment of a Jewish man would have had a seam, two parts sewn together. But the one that Jesus had was, was, was a garment that was woven from top throughout. And there, was a, there would have been a hole in the top for the head, but there was no seam in it. It would have made it of great value. That's the point. The garment of Jesus, the coat, was of great value. And so they are going to cast lots for it. Don't tear it. Don't ruin it. Let's gamble for it. Let's wager for it. Who's it going to be? The seamless garment was something of value to these soldiers. But there was more going on here than just that. The Bible says, in verse 24, They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which saith, they parted, excuse me, they parted my raiment among them, and for my vesture did they cast lots. These things, therefore, the soldiers did. This, first of all, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Psalm 22, in verse 18, says, They part my garments among them, they cast lots upon my vesture. It was a prophecy being fulfilled, but there's a great picture here for us as well. The picture in this garment is actually very special, and it ties back to the Old Testament and the high priest's office. First of all, the seamless garment was something that was to be worn by the high priest of Israel as part of his ceremonial dress. Exodus chapter 39 talks about it, uh, the ceremonial and the Bible doesn't specifically say in that, in that passage that it was to be seamless, yet history tells us that it actually was. Josephus and other historians describe it in great detail and make the point that it was a seamless garment. The seamless garment was to remind them, the, the high priest, that he was going into the presence of God without blemish, without flaw. It was a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He was about to do as our great high priest. I want you to turn, keep your place, but turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. And look at verse 24 with me. Hebrews 9, 24. The Bible says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he, offer, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. And it, as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So Christ once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that took for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. The Bible tells us of the, the, the high priestly uh, office of Jesus Christ. That he wouldn't offer himself often as the high priest did every single year going into the Holy of Holies uh, with the blood of others to make atonement for the people. But Jesus offered himself once for the sin of the world. Hebrews 10 and verse 12. 
The Bible says, But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The seamless garment was a picture of Jesus Christ and His high priestly office. Secondly, understand this, and we have to go back into the context a little bit, but just the night before, just the night before, Israel's high priest had rent his own garments in the presence of Jesus, being frustrated with him, which actually was forbidden by law in Leviticus chapter 21 and verse 10, that the high priest could not rend his garment. It was a picture of the end of the high priestly system of Israel. That it's over and it's done and our great high priest is here. Also, when Jesus died, we're told that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. Matthew 27, 51 tells us that. That is also a picture for us, friend. The end of the Old Testament system. No more would the priest make intercession for the people. No more would he enter into the Holy of Holies once a year. The way of access to God was wide open through Jesus Christ. It's over. It's done. When Christ died, that old system had forever passed away, and the great high priest ever liveth to make intercession for us. Not only was this dying man Israel's true king, but he's also the high priest who accomplishes his high priestly ministry precisely in this hour of most extreme dishonor. Jesus Christ is the only one qualified for the job. And thank the Lord, child of God, thank the Lord that He's in heaven this morning carrying out that job for you and me that He ever liveth to make intercession for us. Go back to our text and I want you to see the third thought here. I want you to see the triumph of the cross. We see the trip to the cross We see the testimony of the cross. But thirdly, I want you to notice the triumph. In verse 25 of John chapter 19, the Bible says, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus His mother and His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw His mother and the disciples standing by whom He loved, that's John, He saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then he saith to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it upon hyssop, and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The triumph of the cross. Lest we are left to think that Calvary was only a place of death and only a place of suffering. We're given some statements here by Jesus while he hung on the cross. And these statements teach us the truth that Calvary was actually a place of triumph. 
First of all, we see the triumph of compassion. In verses 25 through 27, in the midst of his dying hour, with all of Jesus' enemies reveling in his death, and with his little band of followers at his feet, Jesus took the time to make provision for his mother. That is amazing to me. And maybe, maybe it shouldn't be, but it is. In the moments of, of, of Jesus' torture, in the moments of the agony, in the moments of paying the price for sin, Jesus was still concerned about the physical well-being of his mother. What an awesome thought. What an awesome uh, description of the kind of God that he is. Here is Jesus paying the price for sin for every man. This is eternal. This is forever. It's, it's future for some. And Jesus is focusing on the payment for sin. And yet, in the middle of all of that, he's still concerned about the physical well-being of his mother. What compassion. What love. What an amazing thing that he didn't forget that she had physical needs. And he said, Behold, woman, behold thy son. Man, behold thy mother. And he made sure that she was going to be taken care of for the rest of her life. And I just think that it's symbolic of the fact that God, there, there are great things, there are spiritual things, there are eternal things, like our soul. And those are the, the most important things. But God is a God who's still concerned about the physical things of life too. And it was talked about this morning, to, to, to not be fearful of the, of the physical needs because your Father knoweth that you have need of these things. The compassion of Christ in the middle of it. And we can take to heart that truth for ourselves as well. That, that even, in, it, even in, in that hour, maybe... maybe uh, Jesus Christ was uh, thinking of his mother, but, but there's no doubt in my mind that, listen, you and I were on his mind too. That he cares for us just the same. Even though our names may not have been mentioned, certainly we were on his heart and his mind that day. Thank the Lord that he's that kind of a God. But then you look at verse 28, you see the triumph of completion. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Verse 30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, He said, It is finished. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. The final word that's recorded here is, It is finished. That's a translation of the Greek word, Tetelastei. It's given in the perfect tense, which means this. It means something that took place in the past that has present and future abiding results. What is taking place here? The crucifixion, the death of Jesus Christ. But what's actually taking place here is that the payment for sin was being made. And it's something that happened in the past, but has present and future abiding results. 
It could be translated this way and understand it like this. It stands finished and always will be finished. In other words, Jesus says, it's done. When he knew that all things were now accomplished. That is a powerful statement. He knew that the payment for sin was done. He he went through and endured the agony of becoming sin. He endured the agony of his father turning his back. He endured the agony of his father that it pleased the father to bruise him, that he would see the travail of his soul and would be satisfied. That phrase, tetelastei, it was a common word in that society. It was used of a slave who had completed an assignment given to him by his master. He would report back to his master and he would say, it is finished. It was used of an artist who had completed work on a painting. And when he was done, he would stand back and he would say, it is finished. It was used by a merchant who had sold merchandise on credit. And when the bill had been paid in full, he would write in the ledger book, it is finished. He would write the word, tetelastei, it is finished, it's paid. When Jesus used this word from the cross, he was saying, Father, I've finished the work that you've given me to do. I've paid the penalty for sin. It's done. Thank God that our salvation rests upon the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? That there's nothing left to do. That you can't lose that salvation. You can't maintain it or keep it. It's all done. It's finished. It's paid for. It's cared for by Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Amen. I've got nothing left to do but to lean on what He's already done for me. That's a major part of the good news of the gospel, friend. It's finished. Are you trusting in the forever finished work of Jesus Christ and nothing else? Because there's nothing left to do, and you can't possibly be saved if you're trying to do something to merit favor with God. Now I want you to notice verse 30, the last part of it, and we'll bring some things to a close here. The Bible says Jesus said it is finished, and He bowed His head, And gave up the ghost. Verse 30 says about the death of Christ that he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Usually, when people are dying, rarely do they bow their heads. In fact, it's far more common for people to raise their head to try to get just one more breath. But not Jesus. When He knew that all things were accomplished and He knew that God the Father had been satisfied and He knew that the price of salvation had been forever paid, He willingly allowed His Spirit to leave that body 
John chapter 10, in verse 17, Jesus said, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. And here's the principle, and here's the thought, that Jesus died only when He knew that the payment for my sin was fully made. It was the cross that made the difference. And as we bring these thoughts to a close today, friend, I want to ask you a question. Has the cross made the difference for you? Does the truth that Jesus did all of this for you and me move your heart? If you're here today and you're not saved, are you keenly aware of the fact that you need to be saved? If you say that you're saved, have you really cast all your hope of heaven upon what Jesus did and nothing else? Are you trusting His death and His shed blood for, as the payment for your sin? Or are you still trying to do it yourself? You can't. You can't possibly. You'll never provide salvation for yourself. You'll never earn favor with God. It's already been finished. All you have to do is repent of your sin and believe. If you're here today and you're saved, think again on what a great treasure we hold in salvation in Christ and what He's done for you. Amen? And praise the Lord that He is our great High Priest, still today, ever living, to make intercession for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, use Your Word. Thank You for it. Lord, would you accomplish your purpose in hearts today? And for those who are not saved, may they again see their great need of salvation and come to the cross. Father, we pray for those who are saved. May we remember again afresh, anew, the sacrifice for our sins. Lord, may it cause us to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.